Well, good evening. I'd like to thank all of you who uh, prayed for me last night as I traveled home. Uh, and then travel back tonight. Tonight is an experiment. <laughs> um, my wife will be here tomorrow night. Uh, but every night, my daughter likes to talk. So um, she is uh, under strict orders to n- not. <laughs> And I was in Lynchburg this morning. Many of you may have seen that Ted Cruz announced that he would be running for president. And he was at Liberty this morning. And that was uh, one of the reasons I had to be back. And uh, I was with him and his family and uh, Jerry Fowell Jr. before uh, he went out. And uh, as I was there and, you know, every news agency and the country was there, and uh, it was just the, I don't know, eight of us back in the back. And uh, I thought, you know, I would rather be in Roxborough than in this green room. Because I, I, I'm enjoying that a lot more than back here. And, uh, and I thought to myself, you know what, if I was the president... It would be a step down from being a gospel preacher. And I really believe that. I, I got, oh man, I got some nasty emails a few years ago when Sarah Palin was on the ticket for vice president. And I just, listen, I, I think it's a step down to be the vice president of the United States rather than a mom. That's just my own personal opinion. I don't think anything wrong with it. I just think that's one of the highest callings in all of the world. And, uh, so we were back there and he's a nice man and I'm sure he'll, make his case to be the president. And right before he walked out of the door, he said, uh, Jason, let me ask you one question. What in the world happened to your shoe? No, he didn't really ask me that. <laughs> I really was there, but he didn't ask me that. <laughs> he probably felt sorry for me. <laughs> Told him we could have a underprivileged preacher fund, then I'd buy some new shoes. <clears throat> I want to get... You to get a picture in your mind tonight. I think it'll help you as we work our way through our text tonight. Um, Many of you have met Lily. She just asked me a few minutes ago if she could go around and hug everyone. So wherever she's at at the end of the service, if you did not receive your hug, she'd be more than happy to give it to you. Um, I'm in my office at the church, as I am most every day. And I tell my secretary, and I do this on occasion, our office is like Grand Central Station at times. And any time we're there, people stop by, they are nice and say hello. On occasion, if I'm really, really up against a deadline or need to get something done, a huge part of my job at Living Word is all of the administrative type of stuff, I'll tell my secretary, I'm going to close my door and no one is to come in unless it is an absolute emergency. There's usually other people there and uh, if something needs to be done, they can do it. If someone needs to talk and it's not absolutely an emergency, they'll leave their name or their number. And so a couple times a week I'll say, listen, I just need a few hours. No phone calls, take my emails, make any appointments, but the door's shut. Now, Lily, 
does not ask Sharon, my secretary, for permission to come into my office. In fact, Lily doesn't even knock. She just opens the door and comes right in, comes around the desk, gives me a big hug and a kiss, and asks me how I'm doing and if I have any candy. (laughs) She has, and she knows that she has, free reign in and out of my office at any time. And it's because she's my daughter. She's my child. Now, other kids at the church, we've got, I don't know, 100, 150 kids at Living Word. Now, I love all of them. They're great kids. But when my door's shut, they're not to come into the office. But Lily's my child. Because she's my child, she doesn't have to ask. She just comes on in. And when she comes in, I stop what I'm doing and I pay attention to her. I want you to think about that. If you're in here and you, you're a parent or a grandparent, you, you appreciate that. Your child has the ability to call you out of a meeting, to come and see you at any point, at any time. Well, tonight we're going to see a story, a parable, really two parables, and it's given by Jesus to illustrate a point about the type of prayers that we should pray as his children. Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. We're going to talk about praying audacious prayers. Now, don't, don't hear me say arrogant, disrespectful, but would audacious, would Bold persistence be a way in which you would describe your prayer life. We read a lot about prayer in the New Testament. Jesus says a lot about prayer. In Luke 18, we'll we'll look at this just very briefly in a few minutes. You don't need to turn there. But we have another parable about a widow before a judge, and she is persistent. And Jesus commends her for her persistence. It's another parable that is a how much more if, if the judge will give in to the persistent request of the widow, how much more will God hear us? We're told a lot about the attitude of prayer as well. We're given models and practices about prayer. But tonight, it looks a lot like a don't give up prayer, and certainly that's it, but it's more in the type of prayers, the type of request that we are making. In Luke 18, again, we have this persistent widow with this unjust judge, but here in our story tonight, we don't have a widow before a judge, we have a friend before a friend. And then as we work our way in the text, we not only see Uh, uh, a friend to a friend, but we see a father to a son. And then Jesus keeps working it out over and over and over. And finally, we come to a point that Christ makes not a persistent widow before an unjust judge or a friend before a friend or even a son before his father, but the heavenly father and his children. This is, this is the flow of the text. That's how the text is moving. Let's work our way through it. Look at verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. If you map out the prayer life of Jesus, you'll notice that, 
the disciples knew where to find him. When he was up in Galilee, he was in the mountains. When he was down in Jerusalem, he seemed to be in the garden. But he was at this certain place praying. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now, this is not an unusual request. Oftentimes, a, uh, uh, followers of a leader would, would ask them to teach them something, and a religious leader uh, would often be asked to, uh, how do you pray? How do you practice various spiritual disciplines? But, but think of the request that the disciples are making to Jesus. Prayer is such an integral part of, uh, of religious life, of, of any religion, really. Think about the number of people they would have seen pray. Hundreds, thousands of people. I wonder what it was about the prayer of Jesus that made them want to learn to pray like he prayed. Maybe it was the words that he used. Maybe it was the power in which they saw that he prayed. Maybe it was the answers to the prayers that he prayed. Uh, we see in Mark chapter 1 that when he starts to preach... There was a man in the synagogue that day who had a demon, and it seemed as though he came to the synagogue often, but when this demon heard Jesus preaching with a power and an authority that they had never heard before, this demon began to shout out. We see uh, on the road to Emmaus, I don't think you do, but if if I have one request in heaven, I want to hear the sermon that was preached by Jesus on the road to Emmaus. One of the hot topics in preaching this, these days are how to preach Christ from the Old Testament. And that's what he did on the road to Emmaus. It said he started with Moses and the prophets and he preached himself. And when he did that, it says that their hearts were burning within them. Wouldn't you love to have heard that message? There was something about the teaching and the preaching of Jesus that was different than other people's teaching and preaching. But he was also a man of prayer. If you just map it out in the book of Luke, we see in Luke chapter 3 that when uh, Jesus was baptized, he was praying. We, we see that when he began his ministry in Mark cha- or Luke chapter 4, he was praying. When he withdrew into the wilderness, he was praying. He prayed all night, night before choosing the twelve disciples in chapter 6. Before his transfiguration, we see Jesus was praying. He was a man of prayer. In Mark 1, after being at Peter's mother-in-law's house all night and healing many people, the next morning no one could find Jesus and they finally find him up in the mountains praying. And Peter says, let's get back to Capernaum. There's a lot of people that need to be healed. But it was a good while before morning. I don't know what a good while before morning is, but I would guess Jesus was up at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning praying. He was a man of prayer. There was a difference in the way that Jesus prayed and they wanted to learn from him. So Jesus hears the request, and this is what he says in verses two through four. And he said to them, When you pray, say and and yesterday I think in each service you recited what we think of as the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. This is an abbreviated version. I happen to think it's a different occasion than the occasion in Matthew. It may not have been, but probably on more than one occasion, Jesus was asked, teach me how to pray. And this is how he responds here. Father, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. I want you to think about prayer in this way. John Piper, he's a pastor, was in Minneapolis for many years. He said this of prayer. He said, prayer is not an intercom for a butler, but a wartime walkie-talkie. Think about the nature of the prayers that you pray. What Jesus is instructing them to pray is very God-centered prayers. God-focused prayers. How many of your prayers are not God-focused, but rather self-focused? How many of your prayers are focused on your needs, but here when Jesus is asked, teach us to pray, He instructs them in a very God-centered way. Now, I noticed this yesterday for me, maybe not for you, but, but let me tell you what sort of goes through my heart and mind when I recite the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer. I think of it in a very solemn and in a very uh, proper King's English type of way. That's, that's the way when, when I start to recite the Lord's Prayer, something in me it just seems very formal, very Proper, But two things are interesting at the beginning. They may seem like contradictions, but maybe we can place them back together. The first, it says to address God the Father in the Aramaic equivalent of Abba, or maybe you can equate it to Daddy. So, so now think about this. They asked Jesus, how should we pray And whether it's the equivalent to daddy, it certainly is the term that was used in everyday life within the home. So so whatever your child calls you, Lily often calls me daddy. And so this is the way that they were instructed to pray. Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons... God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Christian life is family life. The Christian life is family life. And Jesus is using the language of Abba, this this family life word for how you should pray to God. Now, Jesus called God Father, and when he did that, the Jews wanted to kill him. This was seen as disrespectful. In fact, they they say you are making yourself equal with God in John chapter 5. So on one end, it is a term of the family. But secondly, there is a holy reverence, hallowed be thy name. It's the proper attitude in the face of God. Now, this is important as we approach the parable that Jesus is about to tell. One commentator said this, God shall be God and man shall not whittle God down to a manageable size and shape. So there's a relational respect for God. When you pray, 
There should be an understanding not only of relationship, but of respect. And he's told them to focus on four things in their prayers. Now, you can focus on millions of things, but when Jesus was asked, how should we pray, these are some categories that he found very important, I think, on more than one occasion. First of all, he talks about kingdom progress. Thy kingdom come. Meaning that Jesus wanted them to pray for realities to be seen in the world that were the desire and the will of heaven. Let heaven come down here to this earth. Let the rule and the reign of Jesus be made manifest in this world. We live in a world where the kingdom is already but not yet fully. The rule and reign of Christ is coming in all of its fullness, but it is here now. Jesus is on the throne. Uh, Then it says, give us this day our daily bread. So there was not only kingdom advancement, but there was daily provision. Affluence has blinded us to the reality of God being the supplier of our daily needs. This is something that is very difficult for us to pray with any level of seriousness in white white middle class America. Because it is so easy for us to believe the lie that what we have is of our own doing. And I promise we do not want God to level the playing field. Because even the oxygen we breathe is a gift. The common grace of a beating heart. The ability to think. The ability to do. The favor that you might have on your job is a gift of God. He says pray for daily provision. The Christian life is a recognized state of continual dependence upon God. Anything else is rooted in pride. So we want the kingdom to advance. We have this sense of reliance on God. But then he asks that we might have relational peace. Forgive us as we forgive others. We talked about this yesterday morning, but being right with God forces us into the reality of being right with other people. To have peace with God means we must be at peace with other people. What we receive, we bend out. So we've received forgiveness, therefore we extend forgiveness. And then lastly, he says, pray for personal purity. Lead us not into temptation. He compels them to pray to the Holy Spirit of God to guard them in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation. You are in dangerous waters if you believe you can manage your purity on your own. When I was a student at Southeastern, I would uh, commute for three semesters. I told you yesterday I would go down and back in one day, but for the other three semesters, I would stay at the sleep inn Right off of campus, they gave us a killer deal, and I I would stay for, I don't know, $40 a night. And there was a TV in there that had cable, and I had a computer that had the Internet. Now, by God's grace, um, I've never struggled with pornography, and it is by His grace. But you know what I would do every night I stayed in that hotel room? 
I would take my Bible and I would take a towel out of the bathroom and I would lay it on top of that TV and I would lay my Bible on top of that towel and I had a picture at the time we didn't have Lily. I just, uh, Michaela and I were, uh, were married and I had a picture of Michaela and I would put it on top of my Bible. And it was a reminder to me that I had something worth living for in regard to my personal purity. And it was not by my own strength or my own power. You can think that I'm weak, but I think it was wise to guard my heart, to guard my mind. And it was only by the Spirit of God that I was able to maintain that purity. So, that's what he says. That's how he instructs them to pray. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. Now, now what I am about to tell you follows in the text. So this is the words of Christ. What I'm not doing is I'm not answering the question of what Jesus said. The disciples say, hey, we saw you praying. Teach us to pray. Jesus says, this is how you should pray. End of story. But I think, i got a few minutes left. I need to find somewhere else in Scripture that would help me illustrate this point. Jesus does it for us. What follows next in the text is the first parable. Look at verses 5 through 8. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, uh, lend me three loaves. A friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I don't have anything to put before him. And he will answer from within, Don't bother me. The door is shut. My children are in bed with me. I can't get up and give you anything. And I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Don't you love friends? <laughs> Yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, this story is the linchpin between the request of the disciples to Jesus to teach them to pray and what Jesus says at the end. This is the linchpin. This is, this is what bridges those two parts of our text together. So this is a funny story. When Jesus tells this story, when he ends the story, everybody would have laughed. Maybe Jesus put his hand up and everybody laughed when he was telling the story. But he says, which of you... And every time Jesus tells a story like this, when he starts the story out by saying, which of you, at the end of the story, the response would be, well, no one would do that. That's silly. That's a funny story. That's, that's a silly story. There's no way anyone would do that. Well, do what? Well, let's just understand the culture for a few minutes. You don't have to write these down, but to not understand this is to sort of miss the story. First of all, again, just some things that everybody in the audience would have known. If they knew it, you should too. Normally, bread would be baked in the morning, and it would be a family affair. Everybody would be out in front of the house, and they would normally cook bread for two or three days. So this friend, this neighbor, would have known that there was bread in the house. Number two, 
a home that this friend lived in would have been a very typical home. If I told a story tonight about a house, I wouldn't have to describe it. You wouldn't think of a $20,000 house or a $500,000 house. You would think of a normal, typical house here in Roxborough. You would just immediately think about that type of a house. Well, a typical house in that area of the world during that time, there was one large room, and in the back part of the room, there was an elevated spot where the entire family would sleep together, normally under one blanket. So Jesus is telling this story, and everybody knows what the house looks like. One big room, elevated part in the back, everybody's asleep. Now, because you know that, have you ever tried to, uh, my wife's a light sleeper. I, I can't get out of bed quietly enough to not wake her up. And she always said, what are you doing? Where are you going? Well, this man couldn't have gotten out of bed. His entire family, I mean, large family probably, everybody's asleep. For him to get out of bed is to disrupt everyone in the house. And if you've had kids in the house, you know how hard it is sometimes to get kids to sleep. Well, there would have been a large wooden door. And the large door would have been blocked by either another piece of wood or stone or something to keep the door shut. Of course, there's no air conditioning there. The door would have been opened all day, and at night, to keep anything or anyone out, it would have been blocked. So, for the man to get out of bed at midnight, he would have had to have moved what was ever in the door, and it would have woken everybody up. Fifth, animals. Everybody had animals. It was the way that you lived there would have been some animals in the house, some of them outside of the house. What happens when a man gets out of bed, his whole family wakes up, he has to hop from the elevated portion down to the floor, open the door, everybody's awake. Six, it's important to understand, if I show up at your house tonight, if Stan kicks me out tonight because Lily won't stop talking, and I show up at your house, you're going to open the door. I'm going to say, listen, man, I'm sorry. Stand and kick me out. I, I need a place to stay. I'm too tired to drive back to Lynchburg. And you're going to say, okay, it's fine. It's first door on the left. You know, if you've got to use a bathroom, last door on the right. Make yourself at home. That's not what happened in this culture. It was as rude as you could be. There is nothing that would be more disrespectful than for someone to come to your house regardless of the time and you not offer them a meal. So when when I knock on your house tonight at midnight and you open the door, listen, the one thing I know around here is that all of you fine ladies can make homemade biscuits. My mom, when she makes biscuits, they could be skeets. And um, so we don't get a lot of good homemade biscuits here. So uh, when I show up at your house tonight, it would be nice if we could have, uh, you know, a dozen homemade biscuits. Well, it was hospitality. When I was in Israel in 2005, my God, who I still keep in touch with, you can pray for him. He's not a believer. Um, his, his heart and mind is blinded. 
And I pray every single day for, his name is Mordecai Zeisman. And I pray for Morty. And I pray that the eyes of his heart would be enlightened. And um, I'll never forget the last day I was in Israel in 2005, Morty came to me, and as serious as he could be, he said, I want you to know you are such a good friend that if you were here one more week, you could come to my house and have a meal. And I thought, well, I mean, okay. And he said, no, you don't understand. To invite you into my house for a meal means that I would give my life for you. So the table has significance in our culture. It has significance to have... Two of your youth tonight made a point of coming and sitting with Lily and I, made us feel welcome, as well as two of your leaders, two of the youth. They were the first two there, and and they wanted us to feel welcome. They wanted us to feel at home. Well, in this culture, to not provide a meal when someone came to your house after a long journey was as rude of a thing that you could do to someone. Seventh, there's no place to stay. The inns were few and far between. So certainly it was preferable, preferable to stay with a, a friend. And eight people traveled at night. So it wasn't highly uncommon for someone to show up at night because days were hot. So people would travel at night. And so sometimes they would arrive late at night. And a lot of times you wouldn't know they were coming because there was no way to communicate with them. And listen, I know what it means to be traveling late at night and to get stuck somewhere. I'm not joking. I have spent the night unexpectedly in airports in Washington, New York City, Charlotte twice, Dallas, Chicago, Germany, Brazil, and Israel. The moral to that story is you do not want to travel with me. <laughs> Everywhere I go, I get stuck. I was in New York City one night. I, I flew up to New York City. My brother was headed to Brazil on a missions trip, and he got to Brazil before I got back to Lynchburg. I was freezing. It was in June. I was so cold that night that I found a door open at a restaurant that was in the airport terminal. I went in there, took the tablecloth off of the table, wrapped up, slept in the booth at 2 a.m. At 6 (laughs) a.m., the restaurant opened. I sat up, ordered French toast and coffee, and ate breakfast there. That's a true story. Well, sometimes people travel late at night. And and this man needed a place to stay. So he comes with that picture in your mind. He comes and he says, can you lend me three pieces or three loaves of bread? He knows he has the bread. Now, lend me three loaves is kind of like in school saying, can I borrow a piece of paper? You have no intention of giving it back. He's just in a, he's in a bond and he needs help. Can you give me, can you lend me three loaves of bread? He realizes that he is about to disrespect this traveler of his. And then look at verses 9 and 10. We see that it says that we should ask, seek, knock. Now the story's ended in verse 8, but Jesus makes this observation here in verses 9 and 10. And I tell you, ask, 
Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Now, those words, ask, seek, and knock, carry with it the idea of ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. There's a persistence there. So you can... You can understand what's going through this man's mind. He says, hey, can, I need three loaves of bread. I know you, I, I saw you baking them this morning. I know there are three loaves in there. And the guy's like, no. Okay. Hey, come on, man. I got it. This family has just shown up. I need some bread. I need help. No. And then notice he tells him no. Four times in four different ways. Everybody's got an excuse, but look at the four he uses. Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. Now, he may have answered. We don't see it in the text. First, I already have bothered you. Second, open the shut door. Three... They fell asleep one time, they'll fall asleep again, and fourth, use your legs, get out of bed, and give me three loaves of bread. This is the way at least guys talk to guys. Like, I need help, and I know you can help me. You know I'm in a pickle. Help me out. I need three loaves of bread. And then we come to a difficult word. If you don't have the ESV, you don't have this word, impudence. You you don't. You, you have... Uh, um, there is every translation I could find has a different way of translating that word. Maybe uh, an opportunity in the King James or persistence in the New King James, a boldness in the NIV. The message, a paraphrase, says, if you stand your ground knocking, waking up all of the neighbors, he'll finally get up. The New Living Translation says shameless persistence. The updated NIV calls it shameless audacity. It is this persistence that does not care about anything other than getting what it wants. I, that would get on my nerves. I had, I had a friend of mine. He, um, he's actually in federal penitentiary for the rest of his life because he um, was addicted to pain medicine and found it to be a good opportunity to rob a CVS drugstore in the middle of the day to get more medicine. Um, terrible, terrible tragedy. Wife, four kids. And uh, shortly before that, he left his wife to go live with his mama, and he was 50 years old. Um, I won't make any further comment on that, but that's where he was at. And he was in her apartment, and I knew it. And I, my knuckles were bruised. I knocked on his door for 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Finally, he opened the door. He said, will you please stop knocking on the door? Not until you talk to me. And so we talked, and shortly thereafter, he went home. But 30 minutes. <laughs> this is what this guy's doing. He's knocking. I need three loaves of bread. No. I need three loaves of bread. No. Hey, man, listen, I need three loaves of bread. No. 
I need three loaves of bread. No. I need three loaves of bread. No. This is the way it went. That's irritating. I understand. That is, that would get on your nerves. It might be getting on your nerves. (laughs) And that's the point. That's the point. Shameless persistence. I don't care, I don't care how my friend thinks of me. I, I don't care, I don't care if I wake the neighbors up. I have a responsibility to feed the guest that's in my house and I will do anything in all of the world to make sure that he hears me and that I get what I want. Now, what Jesus is doing is he is making an argument. Do not have your takeaway be, okay, when I pray, I need to pray like that. That's not the point. The point is from a lesser to a greater, from a weaker to a stronger. It's a how much more type of an argument. I mean, if your friend would do that, if you were persistent enough with your friend at any and all cost, to get Him to do what you needed Him to do, how much more then will God? How much more? How much more would He do for you? Now, notice what He says here in verses 9 and 10 again. I tell you, who asks will be given. Seek, find, knock, it will be open. Everyone who asks receives, seeks, finds. The one who knocks, it will be Opened. Does this mean that you can pray anything you want and receive it? No. This isn't a name it and claim it message. In fact, Jesus, he answers the pushback there. They think, oh man, this is great. We just say anything. He's not this sort of heavenly ATM. He's not a genie in heaven. Anything you ask, you're going to get. God answers every single prayer you pray, knows an answer. So, so this is the five ways he answers prayer. Yes, no, yes, but not right now, yes, but not in the way that you expect. And probably most of the prayers I've prayed have been answered like this. You've got to be kidding me. (laughs) That's the five ways, really the four ways God answers prayer. If you ask, if you seek, if you knock, God answers your prayers. Continuous, verbs of continuous action. There, there, There is a reward for the persistence of prayer. We've got a lady at our church, her husband is in very bad health and in his 70s, and for 40 years she's been praying for his conversion. And just recently there has seemed to be a little sliver of hope, a few more questions. The old timers used to call it prevailing prayer, just sticking with it, prevailing prayer. Laying hold of the garment of God and praying, pleading with God. Understanding I have no hope unless God shows up. Now, I ask the question, does it mean you can pray anything you want and get it? And the answer is no, because look at what God says. God is wise. 
And every good and perfect gift comes from him. You know, sometimes things happen that you don't want to happen. And prayers that you want answered aren't answered. And let's just be honest, God doesn't owe us an explanation. But look at what he says. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Which father would do that? Well, no father. Well, that would be the most wicked, mean thing you could ever do to anyone. Listen, I love I love playing practical jokes on people. I mean, good grief, I'm a suit. If I am one thing, you gotta, I, I know the value of a joke. But there were two great dangers in Palestine to young children. Snakes and scorpions. In fact, most commentators... If you read about this verse, they will tell you that there was a certain kind of fish there in that area that looked like a snake and a scorpion, when it is coiled up, looks like an egg. Can you imagine if your son or daughter asked you, mom, for a boiled egg for breakfast and instead of giving them a boiled egg, you gave them a coiled up scorpion? That'd be the most wicked, cruel thing you could ever do. And listen, you, you, you might pray prayers that are not for your good, and he will not answer them because he will not give you a scorpion or a serpent. He's good, he's wise, he's loving, and he's caring. Verse 13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? You see, here it is again. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You see how all of this fits together? You see how it's working itself out? Not just a friend to a friend or a father to a, to a son, but a Heavenly Father to His, to His children. You know, it struck me a few years ago when they uh, captured and killed, actually just killed, I guess, Osama bin Laden. Do you remember who was in the room with him? His children. And you know what struck me? It did not seem as though they were afraid of him. No wonder why they weren't afraid of him. Because he was their dad. <laughs> Even someone as wicked and deranged as he was loved his kids. And if somebody that wicked will do what's right by his kids, now we could argue, was he doing right by them? No, not ultimately. But they didn't feel like they were in harm's way being with him. Young kids, how much more will God, how much more will he give you good gifts? You want the Holy Spirit? Ask for it. There's a need in your life, ask for it. We are too quick to give up in our prayers. Two two observations and, and we're done. First, we need to practice bold, forthright prayers that do not hesitate to give the good gifts that God has promised to His people. 
When was the last time, honestly, you spent 30 minutes in uninterrupted prayer to God? 30 minutes. 30 minutes in uninterrupted prayer. Again, it struck me just a few minutes ago as Herbert was reading about all of the needs within the community, just health concerns, and how many more spiritual concerns there are. But we, we need to be a people of prayer. You want revival? We need to be a people of prevailing prayer. John Bunyan says, when you pray, let the heart be without words, then your words without heart. I was in a class at a Christian school as a senior in high school, and my, my, my teacher started her prayer out like this. She prayed the same way every day. But on that particular day, she couldn't figure out whether she wanted to pray to God or Father, so she prayed to Fred. She said, Dear Fred, my mom called me. I was on vacation in New Mexico, and uh, she told me about her day. And <laughs> at the end of the conversation, she said, And in Jesus' name, amen. You know, prayer just becomes such, such a habit, such a routine. When's the last time you took hold of the garment of God and you prayed. Either we've lost confidence in God or we've just lost heart. We need to be a people of prayer. We need to believe that God answers prayer. This is one of the reasons that when a prayer is answered, you need to tell everyone you can tell because the greatest encouragement to prayer is answered prayer. When we know that God hears us when we pray and God answers when we pray, we are more apt to pray. I love this story of Alexander the Great. He tells, history tells us a story about a man who approached Alexander the Great and he had a great, great financial need. And the only person that he knew that could meet this need was Alexander the Great. Alexander tells uh, this man to talk to his uh, chief financial officer, as it were. And he tells them the need, and, and this man in control of the riches of Alexander the Great goes and tells Alexander, uh, this is his need, but this is far beyond anything we would ever think about doing. And Alexander told him, meet the need. And he asked him, why would you meet this need? And listen to what Alexander said. He treated me as a king in his asking, and so I shall be as a king to him in giving. Approach God as king, as the one who is sovereignly ruling over everything. I, I wonder, I, I wrote in my journal this morning, I wonder if my days lack power because of a lack of prayer. If my family suffers because of my lack of prayers. If I don't, if I don't show Christ's likeness like I should because of a lack of prayer. If my church, living word, I say my, the one I attend and serve. If it lacks revival because I lack power and prevailing prayer. Mueller, he said once, he is not converted, but he will be. You know someone who's lost? 
Would you take hold of the garment of the Lord and pray? Or be like Jacob in your prayer, not let go till you get what you want. Or God turns your heart towards something else. I will never forget the story that Jim Cimbala told about his daughter who was in defiant sin. And she had been living a life that was far from God for many, many, many months. And one Tuesday night, if you know anything about the Brooklyn Tabernacle, you know about the, the, the stories of their Tuesday night prayer meetings. And one night, one of the elders there at Brooklyn Tab told Jim Cimbala, we need to pray for your daughter. And he really hadn't shared much with the church about what was going on. It was sort of the elephant in the room. Everybody knew about it, but nobody talked about it. And Jim Cimbala says that he agreed to allow them to pray for her, but that he would not lead in that portion of the service. And, and this elder stands up and begins to just simply say, their daughter, Jim and Carol Symbola's daughter, is in sin and she's far from God and they don't even know where she's at and they, they really don't even know if she's alive right now. And we need to pray for her. And, and fresh, fresh wind, fresh fire, Jim Symbola testifies. He says, I don't know what happened in that moment. He said, but that room sounded like a woman giving birth as those people started to plead before the throne of God for his daughter. He said he left there that night. Carol was sitting at their kitchen table drinking a cup of coffee. And he looked at her and he said, if there is a God in heaven, this is over. He went to bed the next morning. Carol was screaming for him to get downstairs. And his daughter was there. And she was begging for his forgiveness. And then he says, with the seriousness of a defense attorney, she looked at me in the eye and she asked me, who was praying for me last night? And her life has radically changed. She's a medical doctor in Cuba. She's a surgeon in Cuba today. And it was all because people were willing to pray. I wish the Napton family, they'll be at our house tomorrow night, won't they, Lily? Micah and Lori and Scout and Sawyer. Sawyer was baptized on Sunday and Major. And then they've got a little four-month-old brother named Shepherd. A year ago, Lori was pregnant with Shepherd. They were at a conference on a Saturday my wife and Lori. And on Thursday, Lori had her second MRI, or her, her second sonogram, confirming that Shepard had died. No heartbeat, no movement. They had done a second, and on Tuesday, she was to have a medical procedure to take this lifeless body out of her body. And they went that day, and Lori told my wife, I just believe God has a plan for this child. 
But we've got the report. We've seen two sonograms. There's no heartbeat, no movement, nothing. The growth, they they knew exactly when this child had died. Now, listen, I'm just telling you what I know to be true. I could take you to my house, 56 Crestaven Terrence, tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, and Shepherd will be there. There was a lady there that night that heard the story and said, let's believe with God. She put her hands on her stomach and she prayed and she says, don't have the procedure on Monday. Go and have another sonogram. And she went and Shepherd is alive and well. Now, listen, I understand you can say, well, the doctors just royally messed up two sonograms. Maybe. But I believe that we have a God in heaven who not always, but has the power to hear and to answer prayer. I don't understand all the mystery of prayer. I just know we're instructed to pray. So would we pray? Would we pray? What what I'm not trying to do is I'm not trying to sort of be able to say tonight when I call home, there was 20, 30 people at the altar praying. No, you know, however and wherever and whenever you pray, that's good. But I just want you to be a people of prayer. Revival is not possible. It is impossible to state it negatively without prayer. So maybe there's a name, maybe there's a need. You need to pray. You need to pray. You need to take hold of God and pray. Ask and keep on asking. Knock and keep on knocking. Seek and keep on seeking. Would you do that? Would you believe in God enough to pray and to keep on praying? Father in heaven, we ask you even right now to stir our hearts and our minds that we might pray. Oh, God, may we believe in you enough to pray. There are some people in this room who need to come to this altar and pray, if for nothing more than to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. The the overriding image of my father in my life is not any sermon he ever preached, but every day, every morning of my young life. From the time I had the ability to remember to the time I left home at 21 years of age, every morning my dad knelt before us in prayer. So would we pray? Oh, for that husband or wife or son or daughter or co-worker or neighbor or friend who's far from God, would we pray and would we just plead before your throne for them to be saved? For that need, Lord Jesus, where there is sickness and, 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 and it looks like there is no hope, would we pray? Oh God, would you heal relationships within this church and this community by prevailing prayer? Would we come and would we pray, Lord Jesus, taking hold of you, believing that you hear us, that we pray before the living God? So, Lord Jesus, come even now. Holy Spirit, have rule and reign over the hearts and minds of these precious people even right now. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.